What a blessed song. What a blessed Savior. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. You heard the first four verses read this morning. There are quite a few verses in the passage we'll work through this morning. In uh, a news post that I saw as I was checking on the latest from Morocco, there's another article that posted on a group called the Immortals. The Guardian has released it. Not a reputable source, I know, but still, I had read about these men in another publication. The Immortals are these multi-billionaires that are spending millions of dollars a year to live forever. They are on a diet of, I guess, just some kind of paste, I would imagine, like, I don't know, but paste and vitamins, and they're physically, they showed a, a picture of the guy, and it said, pick the guy up at 70, and you're going, I don't know, they're saying 70's the new 40, and uh, I guess if you've got, you know, two million to spend on meals a year, it could be, and they're taking drugs and things with their, it's just, they're, I'm no physician, but I can make a prognosis. 100% of the immortals will die. And they will have spent a lot of money and eaten a lot of probably, let's be honest, nasty things to extend their mortal life. This chapter begins with the account of a certain man. You heard Josh read that a few moments ago, but this wasn't just any man. It was Mary and Martha's brother, Mary and Martha of Bethany, a friend of Jesus, they described, they sent the letter to Jesus and said, the one whom you love is sick. There's going to be some heated remarks made, some whispers said about Jesus because of his lack of healing Lazarus and some questions asked that, to be honest, if we were reading this passage for the first time, these questions make a lot of sense. Jesus will shed tears. He will even express in the original language, you'll see some angst at the graveside. I say that right at the top so that you understand what we're reading is not some abstract fable uh, just to paint a picture of what a resurrection might look like. This is really happened. It, it, it happened to folks that Jesus knew and others knew, the disciples knew and had a relationship with. This passage is not a prescription either for great faith so that your loved ones will become immortals. That's, that's not what this is. This is very personal. It is descriptive of an event that actually wasn't repeated in Jesus' ministry. I know he broke up another funeral, but it didn't happen like this one. It's descriptive of something that won't be repeated because Jesus' resurrection was very different than this. And yet, if we navigate the text this morning with Christ as the main attraction, not Lazarus, but if we watch Christ through this interaction and let the text speak for itself, I think you're going to find he is out of step with just about everybody around him. Even though this is so personal to so many, Mary and Martha included, and they know Jesus and they know the word. They don't know what he knows. They don't see what he sees, even though it's very real and they're dealing with trauma right in front of their life. 
There's some very real encouragement in here that reminds us that while death is the great equalizer, death does not have the final word. And we can rejoice in that this morning. That's awesome. But beyond that, I think Jesus will teach us something about a resurrected view. And that's really the title for the thought through the text this morning. A resurrected view that he has. The first few verses that Josh has already read, what what brings us here? In your Bible, you can look at the verse right before, chapter 11, verse 1. You see that last sentence that's so powerful in chapter 10. When he had gone across the Jordan and was ministering there, a fruitful ministry, it says, and many believed in him there. It's a great, great word, a great work that's happening after a difficult interaction with some hostile Jewish religious people. Jesus is having a wonderful time in ministry, and then he gets word of a real crisis from some really dear friends from his. That's the first point I'd have you to write down this morning, a real crisis, a real crisis. This is not some fake thing that, oh, well, they just kind of made a mountain out of a a molehill. No, their brother is sick. He's dying. They send word to Jesus. This special family was very dear to Jesus. We have word from the other gospels that he enjoyed being in their home. Mary loved to sit at the Lord's feet and contemplate him and his teachings. Martha seems to have the gift of service. Uh, She was a busy soul, devout as well. Lazarus must have been the youngest of the uh, siblings, the younger brother at least of these two, because he seems to have had no responsibilities in the family. That doesn't mean he was a teenager. It means he was just the youngest in the family. We know their home is a home of peace and hospitality for Jesus and the disciples. It's where he would slip off in Bethany and take off his sandals and relax and be refreshed. But now that home of peace is a home of crisis. Everything is turned upside down for them. It's in disarray because Lazarus is gravely ill. It appeared that he could die at any time. And no doubt, Mary and Martha are exhausted from tending to Lazarus, from pacing the floor, from crying out to their heavenly father. And they send for Jesus. But actually, I want you to look at how they send for Jesus. In verse three, the Bible says, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You know what's not there? An invitation to come. They didn't say, Jesus, would you come quickly? Lazarus is sick. They didn't say, Jesus, come please. Can I just tell you, without reading into the text, I think they assumed that he would. When you have somebody close to you that says, my world is falling apart. A natural response for those of us who are moderately empathetic and have the means would be, I'll be right there. Or what can I do? And they're telling the son of the living God this and saying, the one whom you love is ill. They assumed and probably planned that just as soon as Jesus heard, he would hurry without delay, drop everything and run there. I'm sure they had VIP status on his phone, right? Their text would break through even if he had it on do not disturb. They could get to him. 
They understood that he was a, a savior of compassion. The word they use for love is a word of deep friendship there. They're saying your good friend whom you love is sick. Of course Jesus would come. To think otherwise would be inconceivable. So how does Jesus respond to his friend? How does he respond to the news that there's a very real crisis? Look at verse 4. It says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Does that just survey the room by eyeballs here? Does that sound like he's leaping into action or slipping into teacher mode? My kids, I'm sure, uh, they don't roll their eyes to me, but I'm sure internally want to roll their eyes when dad wants to teach them something in a moment. I have to be reminded everything's not a teachable moment. Just move on, right? That's me. I'm talking to me, not my kids. I, I pity them at times, but God in his grace has allowed them to learn patience by endurance with me as their dad. Everything's not a teachable moment, but, but this is the Son of God. He's not doing anything wrong here, but I, I got to tell you, it's a head-scratcher. We know what's coming, but imagine you don't know what's coming. It's a head-scratcher. He doesn't leap into action. There's, there's got to be more going on that meets the eye. Remember, I want to tell you something. You may be right in the middle of a very real crisis. Nobody will deny that. You're not making a mountain out of a molehill. This is a real crisis. <laughs> But our Lord could have plans for you in that crisis that you can't fully appreciate yet. Jesus, fix this. And the heavens seem as brass. Jesus, why don't you do this this way? And the way that you're asking is not selfish. It's not self-motivated. And, and the answer seems not to come. Remember, God's goal is revealed right here. It said it right in the text. This is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Death will not be the ultimate tragedy here. It's clear to see even here that Jesus is not threatened by death. There was a well-known lead singer for a Southern Gospel Quartet from ages and ages ago. For the two of you that even know the reference, it was the, uh, I think the, the Blackwood Brothers, and Jake Hess was the singer, also with the Statesman Quartet. In the 90s, he released a song that grammatically will make you cringe, but it was called, Death Ain't No Big Deal. It is to everybody else, but Jesus seems to know that and have that. Only those with a resurrected view can see that and say that. Jesus knows what others don't know. He sees what others don't see. And he responds differently than everybody else around him. And he goes where other people don't want to go. Look at verse 5. As we work our way through the text this morning, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, it, again, if you were reading this for the first time, what do you think comes next? He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus and so he stopped teaching and immediately left you're like okay now we're back on and it says no he loved them so when he heard that Lazarus was ill he stayed two days longer in the place where he was does that give you pause this passage shows that the glory of God 
and the love of God are not at odds. The Holy Spirit had this scripture recorded on purpose because sometimes we think for God to be glorified means we've got to be in the furnace and, and not that he doesn't care about us, but he cares so much about his glory that it's kind of like his love is secondary to that. And, and the Holy Spirit is telling us by God's word, nope, there's no conflict in the two. My love and glory work together. And you may not understand everything, but I am working something out. God's glory and his love for you are not enemies. Don't ever pit them against each other. His glory is chiefly displayed in his bottomless love for his people. So why did Jesus stay for two extra days? Don't speculate. What does the scripture say? The scripture says he stayed two extra days so that God might be glorified and because he loved them. You say, I don't understand that. I don't either. I mean, I know how the story finishes and so do you. You don't have to understand. If you only believe what you understand, what do you need faith for? We've got to be careful to, and, and be tempted to just believe what we can comprehend and understand. No, that's why the Holy Spirit has come to help us believe this word that points us to Christ. I'm sure that if many of us were in this situation we, and found out that Jesus delayed, it would have felt more like we had been betrayed. I want to tell you something. Your feelings, even though you may be in a very real crisis, your feelings are not qualified to be in charge of everything in your life. Feelings are fallible. Somebody said feelings can be pathological liars at times. Your feelings say, Jesus doesn't love me. See, if he loved me, he would act right now. Don't trust your feelings. Remember, let the truth inform your feelings, not your feelings shape the truth. The disciples and Jesus go back and forth, verses 7 through 16. Look at the text with me. We'll move through this rather quickly this morning for narrative's sake. They, they, uh, he stayed for two days, and then after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And Jesus teaches and says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to wake up. He'll recover. Right? He's just asleep. Tell him to splash some water on his face. But of course, that's a common phrase. And they knew that. That's a common phrase that was used to talk about when people died. It meant their body was sleeping. After saying these things, he said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. The disciples say, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll recover. Verse 13. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. So Jesus says plainly, Lazarus has died. Okay, wait. Where's your brain right now? If you're reading it for the first time, do you go, wait a minute. You just said in verse 4, this sickness is not unto death. So which is it? I'll get there. Hang with me. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. It's clear that Lazarus has died, even though Jesus said this sickness is not unto death. But I want you to notice just in this passage, there's a lot there, but I want to stick to where we're headed this morning, the main point. But I do want to make a comment about Thomas's response. Don't you love it? Do you know him as Doubting Thomas? 
That's what I know him as. That's what we always knew him as, Doubting Thomas. Well, he sure doesn't sound like Doubting Thomas right here. I like this little picture of him. Now, I can't figure out if he's a Navy SEAL here or Eeyore. Let me explain. Uh, so they know they're heading back to dangerous territory. Thomas can't clearly grasp what's going on, but he's ready to go and die with Jesus and Lazarus if this is what Jesus wants to do. Spurgeon makes a note in the margin of some sermon notes on this text and says, of the first requisite for an earnest, successful, soul-winning man, there must be zeal. He says, as well a chariot without steeds, a sun without its beams, a heaven without its joy, as a man of God without zeal. So is Thomas just like lit up and ready to show up for the fight, right? Is he on the front lines? Or the text really doesn't give us the color of the way Thomas responded, just the words. Is he like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Jesus says we're going. He turns to the disciples and says, well, I guess we're all going to go die with Jesus. <laughs> okay, Jesus, let's go die together. Like that, he just saunters off. I don't know. I'm telling you, though, there's no doubt there. There's at least some resolve there to go do something. I love that about that passage. There's a real crisis, and now we see Jesus moving toward that crisis, and shortly after he gets there, we're going to hear a real promise from Jesus, verses 17 through 37, a real promise. He arrives in town and finds Lazarus has already been dead in the tomb for four days. This is no accident. Four days. Why is it no accident? Because on the fourth day, by Jewish custom, all of the village is together to mourn. The professional mourners have come and been there since the burial. That's a small team that's paid for by the house. Then extended family are coming in from town. And then by the fourth day, the custom is that's the highest day, the biggest day around the tomb. Jesus knows what he's doing, doesn't he? Verses 21 through 22, he meets them. Martha says to Jesus, she comes out and meets him while Mary stays behind. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's right. Jesus just told the disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there because I want you to see something different. She, she, she gets it. I want you to see this. This is a real-time lament with Jesus standing right in front of her. Lord, I'm crushed. I'm devastated because my brother has died. And you could have done something about that. But you chose not to, but you were God. And whatever you want to do, you can do. She, she's putting effort into a true confession. But hear me, it's from a place of devastation. Sometimes that's where we confess the truth. And we're devastated. And we're forced to look up from the bottom and see the light. Jesus responds to her and says, verse 23, your brother will rise again. Verse 24. I know that he's going to rise again, Jesus. Thank you for that. And the resurrection at the last day. I mean, she knows the word. She knows the promises of Jesus. She sat under his feet. She's not of those who deny the resurrection. She gets it. She knows what's going on. She knows death is not the end. What she doesn't know is there's something far greater going on that hasn't surfaced yet. Brother, sister, what you don't know is there's something far greater going on that hasn't surfaced yet in your life. You're wondering about these delays that you keep seeming to get. Is this, is this God saying no? Is this God saying wait? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. Only time will tell. But I'm telling you, if it is a delay, his motivation is love. 
And his motivation is that he would be glorified. He is setting the stage to do something where he gets all the credit. Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Can you put it back to verse 25? I want the, everybody just to look at it and, and see what's not there. Jesus did not say to her, I can resurrect people and I have life. He says, can you say it with me? Let's say it together. Just that line, I am the resurrection and life. Let's say it together. I am the resurrection and the life. That's different than I can resurrect people and I have life. As Christians who walk by the Spirit, who live in the Word, we are constantly reminded, hear me this morning, hear me, our hope is not in an event or an answered prayer or in a circumstance changing. Our hope is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the one that we are praying to, not in the prayer being answered. Our hope is not in this thing turning this way or that, but in Christ alone. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All of the ground is shifting sand. Nothing can hinder God from giving life because He doesn't just have life, He is life. Paul would later write, For me to live is Christ. He's everything. You have life, but he is the life. You can lose your life. He cannot and will not lose his life. In fact, when the crucifixion happens, we know from the scripture, freely he laid his life down, but his resurrection was proof that death could not take life from him. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Martha goes to her sister. The next few verses show us a truly human and truly divine Savior responding to this family's sorrow and grief with deep compassion. As followers of Jesus, we're commanded to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. We're commanded to do that. Regardless of our temperament, the Holy Spirit working in us causes us to willingly enter into others' suffering with all the hurting people around us, brother or sister in Christ. With all the hurting that's around us, there's so many opportunities for us to step into that pain and be light and life as Christ has called us to be. We see Jesus experiencing a range of emotions for every Sunday school uh, smart aleck kid. This is their favorite memory verse, right? You say, how many of you memorized scripture? I have. What's your favorite verse in the Bible? Jesus wept, right? That comes up sometimes. It's the one they know, and then they quote John 3.16 afterwards. I had a teacher one time that said, Jesus just wept that that's your favorite verse. We can do better. Let's move on. Sorry. Jesus wept, though. He experiences a range of emotions. In fact, he weeps and is also irritated and troubled by what sin and death and brokenness bring about. Mary and Martha question his timing. 
onlookers around, look at verse 37, onlookers around question his power. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Ouch. I mean, if he's so powerful, why is there a tomb and his best friend in it? But just as Jesus entered their grief, that's something all of us can do, by the way. Only Jesus can end their grief for the glory of God. That brings us to our final point this morning. There is a real power over death. A real power over death. A typical tomb in those days had eight compartments in it. Having been involved in the planning of loved ones who have stepped into eternity. Some with Christ, praise God, and some without Christ. But when you're sitting at the funeral home making arrangements, whether they were Christians and walked with Jesus or not Christians, does not affect the price of what's being negotiated. And it's expensive. And I'm thinking about the tomb situation here and eight people buried. And I just have to tell you, as I was doing some research, I was like, no, no, hold on a minute. That's uh, okay. Eight people could be buried in, in most of the tombs like this. There were hollowed out rooms, usually in a hillside. They'd have three indentations on one side, three on the other, and two in the back. Ashley and I saw something similar to this when we were in Israel. You would too, on a tour of the, the Holy Land. Lazarus' tomb could well have had other bodies in it who had died previous years. On a trip where Ashley and I were recently, we were at a cemetery, in fact, where Vincent van Gogh was buried and his brother. And you're thinking, right, this is going to be historic. I mean, I'm thinking there's going to be armed guards there. I don't know anything. There's nobody there. In fact, there's somebody that just was buried there in March of this year. I don't want to know how much that costs. But uh, they were buried there in March of this year. So even that historic place had other people being buried in it. Lazarus may not be the only person in the tomb. There could have been other people there. Jesus approaches the tomb, verse 38. He looks deeply moved again, comes to the tomb. It's a cave and a stone lay against it. And he says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. That's more gentle than the King James. It says, surely he stinketh by now. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't resist that. That's how I do it, right? There will be an odor. Um, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would not see the, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he talks to his father and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I, I say this on the account of the people standing around that they might believe that you sent me. What's he doing? Some people have been very critical of Christians praying out loud in public. And, and praying for um, things to happen in public. Some people have been very critical. You go back. Jesus said pray in your closet. That's exactly right. And, and no person without a vibrant private prayer life has a public prayer life that's really worth a hill of beans. I know that. But Jesus is about to do something publicly that he doesn't have to say anything loud to get God's attention. He's saying what he's going to say for the benefit of those around to know that God is God. So take note of that this morning. He, he begins to pray. He says, I know that you always hear, but I, I'm going to say this for them. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, 
come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Jesus fought and defeated death in real time and people saw it. Remember, Jesus said this illness does not lead to death. Allow me to be grammatically specific for a moment. To death, that preposition is important. It doesn't lead to death, it led through death. One writer says it's like the train made the stop at death, but there was another stop to make. Lazarus didn't get off there. Very few passages are filled with more hope than this one. The fact that delays are not always final. I'll come back to that in a moment. The fact that Jesus can do anything in a hopeless situation. You can get that from this. There's great encouragement there. Nothing is impossible with God. Death doesn't scare our Father. Those are all reasonable encouragements from the text. But, but there's no more helpless or hopeless state than when death is imminent. So feel the weight of that moment with this family that was close to Jesus. Jesus says to us and to death, not I can resurrect people and I have life, but I am the resurrection and the life. Our temptation is to fixate on the problem and to really build, watch this, our spiritual life attached to this problem and how God solves it. Does that resonate with anybody in the room? I mean, some of you have put all of your relationship with God eggs into a basket that he never actually gave you permission to. Lord, if you don't answer this prayer this way, if you don't do this thing, be careful with that. What you need more than the answer is Jesus. Is Jesus. As Julia makes her way to the piano this morning, there's so many beautiful encouragements in our text. I just want to give you two calls to action. For those of you who are following Jesus and you've been praying and believing, and in fact, you've been praying and believing for a long time, you're not asking for something for selfish reasons. You're not asking for something that you, you're convinced would make much of you. You're asking for something that you're convinced would glorify God if he would answer it. But there seems to be a delay. I, I want the text to show you today on the authority of God's word. One of the reasons God delays is because of his great love. You say, that doesn't make sense to you. I'm not here to help it make sense to you. I'm just here to report what the scripture says. Work that out among yourself, but just know and never doubt the truth that God loves you. And he knows what you need more than you do. The other reason God might delay is he might be setting the stage in such a way that he gets all the credit you may have some hostile, agnostic, or atheist friends that will not be able to deny the power of God if he gets to move in this way and answers on his terms. No matter how it may appear, what your feelings may be telling you, God loves you. When God's children are being ravaged by the events of life, it's very difficult to truly believe that God really loves us, but John 11 and so many other scriptures point us to that reality. 
be encouraged this morning. There are other encouragements. I'm sure you sensed them as you were working through the text. Go back and read it devotionally. It'll bless you. But, but I want to give you one thing I mentioned here on this resurrected viewpoint. Remember, we, said, we saw Jesus acting in a way that nobody act. And I know he's truly God, but he's also truly human here. He, he did know what others didn't know. He did see what others didn't see. He, he did say what only he could say and did, certainly, what only he could do. We can't raise people from the dead today, but we can learn to follow Jesus and, and have the spirit of Christ ruling and reigning in us in such a way that we don't move and act and talk like everybody around us. Church family, brothers and sisters, we have Jesus. We, we have life itself. We know that for us to live is Christ. For us, death ain't no big deal because to die is gain. We know that God's word is absolutely true. It is absolutely trustworthy. And we can stake our lives on this very book. We also know that the Holy Spirit will guard us and guide us to all truth to shine for Jesus. And because of this, we shouldn't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Because of this, we shouldn't be shaken to our core by the winds of this world. But because of this, we shouldn't behave like everybody else. We know more than they know if we know this book. We, we've seen more. We, we've experienced more. We've heard more. We're not waiting for the sky to fall with the next news report. We're waiting for God himself to split the eastern sky wide open and call us home. Our viewpoint is different than everybody else's. Why? Because of the resurrection of Lazarus? No. Because of the resurrection of Christ. Paul would summarize my thoughts better than I can. In 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay that show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He goes on to say in the next section of verses, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way to glory far beyond all comparison as we look not at the things which are seen but to the things which are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal we're not looking at the same thing that the world is looking and taking its cues from we're looking at Jesus so we're always of good courage we know that while we're at home in the body we're away from the Lord for we walk by faith and not by sight. Oh, dear friend, if you only believe what you can understand, you might be setting yourself up for misery and disappointment. Believe all of the scriptures. Set your affections on Christ, not just an answer from the Lord coming in the way that you think it should. Only those who are in Christ, who have recognized that they were sinners, in need of a great Savior, and those who have confessed their sins and turned to Christ, only Christ's disciples can lay hold of this kind of resurrected hope 
and view. Lazarus' resurrection can encourage us this morning, but it can't change our lives. Only Jesus' resurrection from the grave can do that. He came perfectly, virgin born. He perfectly lived out God's design for humanity. He never sinned. He was crucified on the cross for the sins of the whole world. He was buried in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And on the third day, the power of God himself, he raised himself from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of God. The resurrection matters. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. And it can change you this morning. And for those of us, it has changed this morning. We should see things differently than the rest of the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for loving us. Father, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ as a perfect, perfect Savior. Thank you, Lord, that you do what we cannot do. Thank you that you called us to follow you and you would make us fishers of men. Lord, I I pray that when we're tempted to hang all of our spiritual health on the answer to a prayer or a problem working out or a, a, a very real crisis being averted or resolved in a certain way, Lord, help us not to miss you. Lord, help the our desire for a sign or a wonder not to blur our vision for the Savior. Fill us with your spirit. Quicken our mortal bodies by your spirit that we might be a Jesus people. You are enough. You're enough. We bless you. We love you. Help us to live this week with a resurrected view. In Christ's name, let the church say amen.